From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. This is Cheryl Kennedy at the Library of Congress. Late September will mark the 13th year that book lovers of all ages have gathered in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the written word at the Library of Congress National Book Festival. Free and open to the public, the two-day festival will take place Saturday, September 21st from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. and Sunday, September 22nd from noon to 5.30 p.m. between 9th and 14th Streets on the National Mall, rain or shine. It is now my pleasure to introduce William P. Jones, a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author of The March on Washington, Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights. Welcome, Will. Thanks for having me today. 2013 marks the 15th anniversary of the March on Washington. Now, one of the seminal moments of that August 28, 1963 march was Martin Luther King's closing speech, I Have a Dream. His elegant speech has become the enduring symbol of the march, but you write that the very power of that speech has obscured the actual significance of the march, and by extension, the larger civil rights movement. Why do you say that? Well, that's right. I, I think it's important to remember that, the, as we know, it was an incredibly powerful speech, and it, it really resonated. And I don't think it makes sense to try to detract from the power of that speech. But be, in some ways, because it was so powerful, I think we've lost sight of the context in which it was given. As you mentioned, it was the last speech. And by the time Martin Luther King came on stage that day, everybody who was there was very aware of the very specific goals of the march. The program at the Lincoln Memorial had started almost two hours earlier with a speech by A. Philip Randolph, who was the person who initiated the march. He was the official director of the march and the primary organizer and sort of craftsman of the march. So he started by laying out a very powerful message that the march was about civil rights, it was about winning racial equality, but as he said, it went far beyond civil rights and it was about more than simply winning equality for African Americans. It was something, it was part of a broad agenda to bring economic justice and social justice to all Americans. And he he was followed on the stage by eight other speakers who reiterated the main goals of the march, which were not just uh, passing a Civil Rights Act that John F. Kennedy had introduced uh, two months earlier, but making that act much more powerful and stronger. They wanted to increase the federal government's ability to enforce, uh, to uphold uh, the um, access to public accommodations, to enforce voting rights in the South. Perhaps most importantly for most of the marchers, they wanted to add to that act what they called at the time a Fair Employment Practices Clause, which would prohibit private employers and unions from discriminating against workers on the basis of their race. And this was actually not in the, in the law that Kennedy had supported and proposed, and was only added to the law in the months after the march. Uh, and would eventually become Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So the goals of the march, there was a long list of goals, and they had been reiterated several times by the time Martin Luther King came to the podium. And many of the commenters that day 
noted that Martin Luther King's speech was actually rather vague about the specific goals of the march because his task was really to uplift people at the end of a very long day. And so by focusing solely on that speech, the one that was the least specific of them, we've really lost sight, I think, of the the objectives of the march. How would you describe the legacy of the march on Washington? Well, I think the march had a really profound impact, both culturally and politically in the United States, in part because of King's speech and the power of that speech. The march projected an image of the civil rights movement that was had incredible moral power uh, because the the march itself was was so peaceful and orderly. It was a display of interracial cooperation uh, between ten and twenty percent of the people who participated in it were white so in one on one hand it had this it was a tremendous sort of media success it really i think for the mainstream media for m- many sort of moderate politicians, it signaled a moment when many people came to accept an image of the civil rights movement as something that they could support and had sort of moral power. So that was one important legacy of the march. The other was in terms of policy. As I mentioned, the goals of the march were not just to pass a civil rights law, but to really strengthen and make much more powerful the civil rights law that uh, President Kennedy had introduced. And and the march, in a large part, was successful in doing that. It, the, the marchers convinced Congress to uh, to add enforcement measures to the law that were not in it, um, most importantly to add Title VII, the Equal Employment Opportunities section of the law. And I think the, the resonance of the march continued through 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, and probably most profoundly in the passage of laws related to uh, Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, uh, which were all intended to make this connection between, on one hand, uh, enforcing racial equality and, and passing civil rights laws, but also delivering economic justice for all Americans. So the War on Poverty increased funding for education and for housing. Uh, it created uh, out of out of the war on poverty came the Medicare and Medicaid programs, um, and these this was I think in keeping with the spirit of the march, the idea that uh, economic justice and and economic security for all Americans was really integral to the struggle for racial equality. Now you mentioned President Johnson. How much was the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965? due to the march versus the efforts of, obviously, President Johnson's political power? Well, I I think Johnson was really critical to the passage of both of those laws. And one thing that's really interesting about Johnson is that when he came into power after Kennedy's assassination, many of the leaders of the March on Washington were dismayed. They feared, here's a, a white Texan who did not have a history of supporting civil rights in the past. Um, We've lost a a liberal northern Democrat, and we're faced with rule under, 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 in terms of civil rights policy, a a fairly conservative uh, southern Democrat. And they were really fearful that this was, uh, as Roy Wilkins, the head of the NAACP, said, this represents a death blow to the civil rights movement. 
But they were really pleasantly surprised to find Johnson in many respects more open to their demands than Kennedy had been, particularly around these issues of the connection between economic justice and uh, and and racial equality, and in part that had to do with the, the difference in the president's own background. Uh, Kennedy came from a very wealthy family. He had never really experienced poverty. Johnson, on the other hand, had both lived in a relatively poor household, but he had also worked as a school teacher in rural Texas and was very aware of poverty and the, the, the issues related to poverty. So he was actually very open to these civil rights leaders who came to him and said, you know, not only do we want you to pass Kennedy's law, but we want you to change it and make it more powerful. And one thing that's interesting is when Johnson came into power, he said, we need to pass this law as a as an honor in a way as a way of honoring the assassinated president um, John F Kennedy, uh, so he in many ways was able to mobilize support for the law based on that argument that he was doing it to uphold something that Kennedy had supported. But interestingly, he went on to sign a law that included many things that was much more powerful than the law that Kennedy had ever proposed and included things like the Fair Employment Protection uh, parts of it that Kennedy had actually opposed. So he, he used the legacy of Kennedy to push through that law, but I think the ultimate law and the result of the law was very much in keeping with the demands of the March on Washington and had a lot of the effects of the March on Washington uh, with them. He also worked very closely. He welcomed the leaders of the March in Washington into the White House repeatedly over the course of the next year and really strategized with them. His political skills were really essential to uh, passing the law through Congress, and he also used them. I mean, he interestingly, when he invited the civil rights leaders into the White House, he would ask them about their concerns and he would listen to their concerns, but then he would turn around and teach them about politics. And he would say, this is what we need to do to get this passed. We, you know, let me tell you about Congress. Let me tell you about the Senate. Uh, and I think that team uh, and that coalition between Johnson and the civil rights leaders in the year following the march is a really fabulous story of sort of the intersections of sort of a, a protest movement with a very powerful elected official. Now, the Supreme Court's decision in June to knock down an important part of the Voting Rights Act has many people concerned. Many see the civil rights that the march helped to achieve being threatened 50 years later. Do you see that as a very real concern? I do. I think one thing that I... I think is important to remember about the march is that we often see the goals of the march to make a sort of moral statement about racial equality. And I think that view of the march is somewhat misplaced. Um, a month before the march on Washington, or two months before, Kennedy introduced his civil rights bill, and he said very passionately and famously, racial equality is a moral issue as old as the scriptures and as clear as the Constitution. And so that really, I think, before the march even took place, established a moral quality to the goal of racial equality that was affirmed there by, by the President of the United States. In fact, the Supreme Court had affirmed that uh, in the Brown decision 
10 years before the March on Washington. What the goal of the march was, and I think really importantly, was not to affirm that moral statement, but to make the argument that very powerful and specific federal action was needed to enforce that moral authority and to uphold that that moral principle. And so they they didn't want the president to come out and say, you know, everybody should be equal. They wanted the president to give the attorney general the ability to go and punish local authorities for not treating people people equally. Um, they wanted Congress to empower the, the government to prosecute employers or uh, landlords who discriminated against people on the basis of their race. And in some ways, I think that was the central objective, the central, I, I think, effect of the march was to add those enforcement measures to the Civil Rights Act and also to the Voting Rights Act. And that is, I think, what's really at stake in these recent Supreme Court decisions, which the Supreme Court this summer, in both the voting rights case, uh, there was a case related to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and also the affirmative action case, they affirmed the moral superiority or the moral principle of racial equality. But they did that at the same time that they made it much more difficult for federal authorities to uphold that moral principle. And I th- and that does, I think, that should trouble us. Um, I think it it undermines a really central objective of the civil rights movement and a, and a central uh, victory, I think, contribution of that movement. A. Philip Randolph was the lead organizer of the march. He was a labor activist and founder of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the first black union in U.S. history. He first thought of the idea of a march on Washington back in 1941. Could you That's share right. that history, please? Yeah, he he actually and and he actually called for the march and started to and and organized the march. The issue behind that march was uh, there were two major demands. One was integration uh, and an end to discrimination within the armed forces, uh, and also an end to employment discrimination within the defense industries. This was a period before the U.S. had actually entered the Second World War, but the defense industries were gearing up to build weapons and equipment for allies in Europe. And so he argued that African Americans needed access to those jobs and threatened to march on Washington if the government didn't do anything to uphold that. He actually canceled the march at the last minute in the last few weeks of the march because President Franklin Delano Roosevelt created a federal agency uh, designed to stop employment discrimination by defense contractors. This was known as the Fair Employment Practices Committee, and uh, it it operated during the war. There were two really important limitations to that to to the order. Uh, one was the the FEPC, the agency that he created to enforce it, was extremely weak and underfunded, and it also it was a, a wartime emergency order, and so it expired when the war came to an end. So immediately, A. Philip Randolph and other civil rights leaders argued that they needed to both mobilize to strengthen the order and strengthen the FEPC, uh, and then also to push for permanent federal legislation banning employment discrimination. And this really set up a 20-year struggle out of which emerged what we now know as the civil rights movement. So in some ways, this was the beginning of the modern civil rights movement. It established A. Philip Randolph as that movement's most 
important leader, and it also established the demand for jobs and employment as the really primary issue of this movement, which I think we've often forgotten uh, in the you know in hindsight. But this was really the beginning of of the civil rights movement, and that demand for a permanent Fair Employment Practices Commission would remain really central to the civil rights agenda up until the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, which included Title VII, which was which sort of brought to an end that 20-year battle that started back in 1941. The Library of Congress has significant uh, collections of African American holdings, including A. Philip Randolph's papers. Did you do any research for your book at the Library of Congress, and how important is primary sources in researching and documenting historical events? Well, I I did a lot of the research for this book at the Library of Congress, not just in A. Philip Randolph's papers, which are really an excellent collection, but also in Baird Rustin's papers. Baird Rustin was A. Philip Randolph's deputy or uh, leader of the march, and he actually did the day-to-day organizing for the march was done primarily or directed by uh, Baird Rustin. The Library of Congress also has the, a, a massive collection of papers related to the NAACP, uh, and that collection was really essential to my work. And I think, I mean, this is a really this book is really an example of the way in which primary research and primary sources is really essential to understanding. Uh, really critical aspects of the historical record, um, because in part because much of what I found about the uh, about the march went against the grain of what was reflected in the media uh, it, during, at the time, even so the, the the sort of process of organizing the march, the people who were involved at the grassroots organizing the march were not they were not covered in the, in the newspaper. Um, and the only way I could find this was going uh, into these archival sources and really getting, you know, m- meeting minutes and uh, letters between organizers and things like that that you really can only find in, in an archive like the Library of Congress. Well, thank you for that. Actually, the Library of Congress is opening a new photo exhibition in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the march called A Day Like No Other. It's going to open on August 28th until March 1st of 2014. Just to remind people, we've been listening to author William P. Jones, who will appear at the National Book Festival on Sunday, September 22nd, in the History and Biography Pavilion at the 2013 National Book Festival. For more details, visit www.loc.gov bookfest. Will, thank you so much for an enlightening conversation. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to the book festival. Thanks. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.